Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. On this episode, we continue our conversation with retired horticulture professor Debbie Flower about the critters that are munching on your backyard tomatoes. Last time, we discussed the smaller pests, the hornworms, the fruit worms, fruit beetles, snails, slugs, earwigs. This time, we tackle the larger interlopers who are getting into your tomatoes, the rats, squirrels, birds, possum, raccoons, and, of course, the deer Plus, we talk with farm advisor Rachel Long about inviting an eager rodent hunter onto your property, the barn owl. If you've got the room, we learn something new every time on Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, and we'll do it again today in Episode 40, Who's Eating My Tomatoes? Part 2, and we'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. You may recall recently we were trying to answer the question, what's eating your tomatoes? There are so many critters trying to eat your tomatoes, we couldn't get it all into one episode. So our favorite retired college horticultural professor, Debbie Flower, has graciously graced us with her presence again to go through the rest of the munchers in your garden that are eating those precious orbs of red. Debbie, last time we talked about the tobacco tomato hornworm and the green fruit worm and the green fruit beetle. Yeah. But there's so many more. So let's talk about the ones first that swoop down from the sky. Those bird things? Yeah, the bird things. Uh, And it doesn't seem like uh, it's limited to one species of bird either. I've seen small birds. I've seen big birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, birds are out looking for something to eat. And sometimes in hot weather, they're out looking for something juicy to eat. So they they go after many different things and that are producing in the garden many different fruits, and really the only the best way to keep a bird out of from eating what's in your garden is with exclusion, and that would be a netting that would have to go all the way over the plant and all the way to the ground because of course birds can land and fly up under the the netting and then you have a really big problem because you would have a bird trapped in your knitting. So a knitting that is on a structure over the plant goes all the way to the ground and is secured. We talked about that in episode 38. If you go back to episode 38, which came out on August the 18th and in the chapter uh, labeled Blueberry Basics, we were talking to the master gardeners out at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center and they were describing their structure to protect their blueberries. It's a special netting, oh, yeah. and it's a homemade structure made out of PVC pipe and rebar with a special high-quality bird netting uh, to keep the critters out because they were having a problem with birds getting in there, and they found that if they didn't secure that netting to the ground, the birds would sneak in underneath mm-hmm. and then end Absolutely. up end up killing themselves trying to get out yeah. because they couldn't figure out. And by securing it to the ground, let's face it, you're keeping some squirrels out, too. Yes. There are other things that that you're probably keeping. There are a lot of things that can get into your garden and eat that are best controlled by exclusion. And that that would include uh, possums, raccoons, skunks, talked about the birds, um, rabbits, deer. The differences in the type of exclusion depend on the size of the animal and how it gets in. A deer, being the biggest one, would need the tallest fence. When I have, I've been on a lot of vineyards, and the the fence can either be very tall, over seven feet, eight feet is better, 
or it can be shorter and angled mm -hmm. at about a 45 degree angle. So it depends how much property you have to dedicate to your fencing. Deer can go up and they can, or they can go out, but they can't go up and out when they jump. So in some of the vineyards, if you have a huge garden, you could consider this. They just had a double fence, a, a perimeter fence. And then inside of that, uh, only it was wide enough for a dog to run through. Not that you want your dog in that confined space, but it was only about uh, two feet, three feet away. Because, again, deer can go up so they can go over mm -hmm. the exterior fence. But then if there's a second fence there, they have to go far to clear that fence while they're in the air, and they cannot do that. I had a friend who fenced her garden. She lived in deer country, uh, and she just f fenced a few plants at a time so that the whole uh, area that was fenced was only maybe three or four feet wide. And so there was fence, then the garden, and then fence, and went all the way around. It was a complete uh, exclusion around. And so the deer, it wasn't wide enough for the deer to land in the middle. So there are, depending on your budget your access to fencing, your property. There are different ways to uh, keep a deer from getting in. But if you're just looking at rabbits, then you don't need something so tall. Right. But you need something with um, a smaller mesh. Uh, big rabbits, mesh meaning the size of the holes. Uh, so it should be about a half inch. Uh, rabbits, many animals, it's amazing the small spaces that they can get through. Uh, so you need it to be about a few feet tall, about four feet tall, but only have a about a half inch mesh. Possums can also be kept out with a with a fence. I don't know about raccoons. Raccoons are the engineers of the garden. <laughs> and uh, maybe it would just deter them, but the, it would have to be, they would climb the fence. Um, my dad kept a, a tin a metal garbage can with a tight fitting lid of bird seed in a screened in porch that had a, a locked door and they figured out how to get into that porch <laughs> and open that can and eat the, the bird seed so that's something to consider there are other reasons they may be coming to your yard they may they uh the fruit that has fallen on the ground and is readily available very ripe and may even be giving off aromas maybe aromas you can't even smell uh bird seed uh, even if it's in a uh, a rodent-proof uh, bird feeder, if whatever falls to the ground, they may be coming to eat. So sanitation is very critical. Uh, it's especially critical to keep rats out. Would a half-inch mesh fence that's buried partially underground keep out rats? Is half-inch too big? Uh, half-inch is supposed to work. Three-quarter, it's it said that they, and this would be a Adults, for sure, I'm not positive about youngsters, but the fencing recommendations I have read for rats or the the recommendations for closing holes in your house, for mm -hmm. instance, say that anything three quarters of an inch or bigger. Is would, too big. It, right. They'll yeah. get through. But so a half inch is smaller than that. So a half inch should work. And yes, you do bury some of the some of these animals dig. And so you mm -hmm. bury the fence. Either it goes straight down. In some cases, it goes straight down. And, and angles 90 degrees out away from the garden, and that would be for... Woodchucks. Woodchucks, yes. which are also called... Go, uh, gophers, I'm okay. Uh, the, the movie, uh, Groundhogs. <laughs> <laughs> so woodchucks are also called groundhogs. Okay, so uh, and they can dig. So if you've got a digging uh, rodent, so you really have to go out and figure out what you've got. And a good way to do that is to... Lay, uh, go out with some flour mm -hmm. and a sifter, uh, a, a netting of some sort, and, and lay a layer of flour on the ground, hopefully that you won't rain that night or you won't, your irrigation will not run, and then check the, uh, the paw prints 
Yeah. When you when you uh, go out the next morning and see who's been walking around your garden, maybe who's been doing the digging. There is an actual website that has the various culprits who come into the gardens at night. I'll post a, a link to that that shows the paw print design for these various critters mm-hmm. we're talking about mm-hmm. to, to help you uh, figure out who it might be. Yeah, a thin layer of kitchen flour mm-hmm. just scattered on the outside perimeter of the plant. And you can not only tell if it was a four-legged critter, but I imagine if there's sort of a slime trail, you'd figure out, oh, snails and slugs. Yes, got a snail or slug, right, right. And actually, uh, sprinkling something on the ground when it comes to snail and slug control, because they all eat tomatoes, too, uh, is a good idea because uh, of uh, one thing, diatomaceous earth, and another thing, maybe uh, an iron phosphate product like Sluggo to uh, help deter them. Or worry-free, right. Those are brands of of slug bait that are... Uh, Toxic to slugs and snails, but are not toxic to other uh, animals, including pets, uh, birds, uh, other other animals. So that uh, iron phosphate bait works really well. Um, uh, so does uh, copper or copper will keep um, uh, a slug or snail will not cross a copper barrier. Um, and so it but it's kind of a pricey way to control slugs and snails. Copper is not cheap. And it needs to be maintained. It has to be kept clean. Yes, it does. Because it causes, when it's clean, it's like an electrical shock to them. And they don't want to go there. But diatomaceous earth, that's a funny product to me because it you, you can put your hand in there and it feels like powder almost. But to a slug or snail, it is rough and it actually cuts their bodies. Uh, I've, been, I've heard also that um, a nice thick layer and it has to have some width to it, several inches of coffee grounds. We'll keep a slug or snail out. Or at least alert. <laughs> Apparently caffeine and even decaf has enough caffeine in it is uh, a to- is toxic to them. Huh. Okay. And of course, uh, you can always go snail and slug hunting too in the evening or early in the morning, but usually at night with a flashlight. If you see the trails during the day... Try to follow the trail, see where right. they go. Right, and you can create a place for them to hide where you can find them during the day. They they need to be kept moist and cool so they will not bask out in the sun uh, during the day. But if you put down a, a rock or better, a wood, piece of wood, maybe mm-hmm. moist wood, um, they'll find a way to get under that. And then during the day, you just pick it up, collect mm-hmm. them, and dispose of them. That is also a control, too, for earwigs. If you think earwigs are a problem, and they get blamed for a lot. And I, I don't know if they're eating your tomatoes or not. They're usually eating something else. But it, earwigs are one of those critters that people see, and they immediately go, aha, earwigs. Right. Are the problem. And then they do control for them and the problem doesn't go away. But yes, they will they they will also hide in a in a nice cool moist place during the day. If you have the ability to uh, erect and the appropriate location to erect a bat box and I'm not going to try to even tell you how to do that. Um it, it needs to be a certain size, it needs to be have a certain exposure, it needs to be at a certain height, blah blah blah. Um but it, you can look that up, but if you are able to do that um, owls will control things like rats and mice, and uh, they need to eat too. Mm-hmm. So they, they, if you can get one to live in that box, you'll have some natural control. You're absolutely right. Attracting barn owls to your property is a great way to help control the rodent population. In fact, on this episode, a little bit later on, we're going to be talking with Rachel Long. She's a farm advisor, and she's got some barn owl basics for us to help control the rodents on your property. But I got to warn you that barn owls work best 
when they're out in the country or at least in large swaths of land. It could be a ranchette or in very rural areas. But if you have the property, barn owls are a great way to go. Hopefully there are people listening who are in those places who can take advantage of that wonderful natural control. And then the last, to me, the last... Although, you know, if it's a big problem, it's not going to be your last choice. But there there are many of these animals that can be trapped right. legally. Uh, in fact, your government or uh, volunteer associations uh, may even loan out traps. You may not have to purchase them for things like uh, skunks and raccoons and possums and squirrels. Some squirrels are native and you may not. That that You have to check with your local government if the animal is native to your location, you're probably you're not likely to be able to trap it or you may have to trap it live and relocate it. And that's where you'd have to talk to your government about uh, your government's animal control uh, organization about how to do that and if they would help you do that. Yeah, relocation is a, a touchy topic sure because is. most uh, agencies do not want you to trap a skunk or a raccoon or a possum and then dump it on your neighbor. Right. They don't want it either, necessarily. Yeah. So be clear about the rules on that wherever you might live. Right. And then, of course, you know, some people, especially in rural areas, have the ability and distance from their neighbor to use a weapon. But again, it depends on whether the animal is whether your government allows you to dispose of that animal that way. Right. And here here in California, uh, there are varying rules on squirrel control. Uh, tree, uh, absolutely. Tree squirrels, usually you can't shoot. Ground squirrels, if it's legal in your entity where you live, you can shoot ground squirrels. Mm-hmm. Be careful. Right. Yes. Right. Use all of these, these control measures in ways that don't harm humans. Right. And uh, are, are law-abiding as well. But exclusionary tactics seem to be the best way to go to control the vast majority of the other uh, tomato-munching critters. Right, especially the four-footed ones yeah. That's and the birds. That's the number one way to control them is exclusion. And so th- you may want to think about that in planning your garden. Do you have the space around it to put the structure? Uh, how tall is this going to be? Are you going to be able to to go over the top if you're having to exclude birds, things like that. In some areas of California, garden prisons are very popular (laughs) where people have located uh, large gardens and have built basically cages around their gardens to keep out just about everything. Yeah, I've been to a Yupik blueberry field and it was at least an acre and it was completely uh, netted in. Wow. Yeah. I had to go in the net space to pick the berries. I mean, the good news about that, if you've got the money to net an acre, you've got the money to put doorways in that netting. I just remember overlapping net, but and I think it was a double entry, you know, an overlapping net. And then I'd have to go through another set to get into the garden. Right. Now, the downside to permanently enclosing your garden, if it's too tight of a mesh like less than half an inch, you might be keeping out some very good pollinators. Uh, There's no uh, birds are going to get in there to do much in the way of pollination. Uh, The moths probably won't get in. And they're a pollinator. Right. So you may be limiting the good guys. Right. So it it always comes back to know what's causing the problem. Right. And if you don't know, get as much information as you can. Take it to someone who does know and and. Uh, get it identified before you use the control. There are a lot of good books on the subject of 
deer and gardens. Mm -hmm. And that can give you uh, plenty of ideas there. I'll I'll give you some links to uh, some of my favorites, including a series of books about uh, plants that deer won't eat. I think there's an asterisk on each of those covers that says, unless they're really hungry. And I had a video. It's a video. It's a VCR. So that I used to show. And it was a, a garden, a vegetable garden that deer would not eat. And it was done in uh, Southern California. Was it like sprayed with garlic oil or something? Um, they, I don't think they used sprays. They used a, a periphery of plants that deer would not eat to try to keep them out. Uh, and it wasn't 100% successful. Oh, yes, they did make a spray, the kind mm. with egg, you know. Oh, putrid. bad smelling <laughs> spray that yes. you just want to be around a lot. Yes, know? and that can work. Um, you know, there are, are lots of brands of, of deer control that that can work. But when deer are very hungry, nothing will work. Right. And you can forget about um, the other thing we didn't talk about is in dissuading a lot of the four-legged critters, you'll see ads for uh, sprinklers with sensors oh. that when somebody walks through, the sprinkler comes on and scares them away. In fact, I just saw a commercial for one where a sprinkler came on and the deer scampered off. And I'm thinking, that deer will be back. That yes. deer will want a shower eventually. Right. It'll work once, twice, but no, they get used to it. Yeah. Yes. It's called habituation. And that's why uh, in vineyards, for example, they only put out that flash tape right. during harvest time. Because if they left that flash tape out all year long or if they had their uh, hi-fi cannons going off right. uh, at various uh, intervals to scare off birds, the birds would get used to it. So you have to limit your use of those kind of techniques. Scare tactics. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever seen a successful scarecrow. All right, we've saved your tomatoes for next time. Debbie Flower, thanks for your help. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Fred. No, that sound wasn't fingernails going across a chalkboard. That was the sound of the barn owl, a very distinctive owl with a very distinctive cry. Barn owls may be a big help where you live to control the rodent population. It's been estimated that on farms alone in California, rodents cause something like a half billion dollars damage. Now, if you live in the country, maybe you have a ranchette, maybe you have open fields next to you, and if you have a rodent problem... Barn Owls might be able to help you out as well. We're talking with Rachel Long. Rachel is a farm advisor based in Woodland for UC Cooperative Extension. And Rachel, Barn Owls are a big help when it comes to controlling rodents, aren't they? Well, uh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, rodents, uh, as you just mentioned, are really, really terrible pests, uh, especially for uh, for farmers because they feed on the crops uh, they and they also can uh, damage the irrigation line. So when I'm talking about rodents, I'm referring to mice, to voles, which are also called uh, meadow mice, uh, gophers, and, uh, and then sometimes even we get, uh, we get rats out there on the farms. And so, um, so yes, so these are really, uh, really terrible pests that, uh, that definitely are challenging to, uh, to control. But I hear a lot of farmers screaming through the window at me and homeowners as well saying, but what about squirrels? Will they go after squirrels? So, uh, yeah, so barn owls, no, probably the, uh, they won't go after squirrels. You know, they're just uh, too, too big of prey. There's certainly a lot of raptors that will go after the, uh, the squirrels. And so you have uh, hawks and you have uh, uh, eagles. 
but the but the other problem is is you know the squirrels are active during the daytime and uh, and the uh, and so raptors and uh, the owls are, are are active at night and uh, and so they just you know they just don't uh, don't overlap but of course the uh, the uh, uh, like hawks and uh, eagles uh, they're active during the day and so they're more of the uh, predators of the squirrels so the nocturnal rodents the voles the gophers the mm-hmm. rats the meadow mice they are the mm-hmm. targets then of these barn owls how many rodents will a barn owl eat? So, uh, um, so a family of five, and that would include like two adults and uh, and three young. They'll feed on about a thousand rodents during this se- during the season. You know, when they're nesting and, and going out and actively hunting and bringing bringing rodents, or, you know, gophers and voles back to the nest. And uh, so they'll, uh, as I say, about a thousand rodents during the season. And sometimes they'll even nest twice in a year. And uh, when they nest twice, you know, then you're doubling that number of rodents. So, uh, so that's uh, that's a lot of rodents that they will feed on in a uh, in a year. Barn owls are, are very recognizable if you get a chance to see them by their white face, but they have a, a, a slightly different call than your typical screech owl, don't they? Right, they do. You know that uh, that when you hear these uh, barn owls at night, they actually do screech, and uh, rather than hoot, a lot of the uh, or owls are, are hooting owls. You know, we're really familiar, for example, with the great horned owl hoot. But the uh, barn owls have a loud screech, and uh, and it, it actually can be kind of scary if you don't know what it is or some people just find it really annoying Uh, but others of us know that you know it's actually good to hear that sound at night because it means that you've got a predator out there that's hunting your uh, your your gophers and and mice and uh, and uh, helping to control them naturally i am sure many people have been surprised at the sight of a barn owl at dusk because you don't hear them coming they can swoop in and you won't even know they're there yeah, they uh, they are actually you know they're they're just stealthy. I mean they uh, they actually have uh, their feathers are sort of modified so that uh, so that they just really don't make a sound and it it is startling you know when you're when you're out in the evening and then suddenly a barn owl is like right above you and you just don't even hear it. It's really uh, it's really remarkable how how well they can uh, they can hunt at night and that's what makes them so effective is they've got great eyesight. And uh, and then you just don't even hear the the beat of their wings, uh, the whooshing that you normally would hear from other birds. You don't hear from the from the owls, and that's what makes them su- such successful uh, predators. And uh, that they can they can capture their prey at night, and the prey don't even hear them. You know, one thing is that uh, that uh, the barn owls really do have uh, incredible hearing and incredible uh, uh, sight. You know, they have that they have that icon- iconic heart shaped face that is just beautiful. You know, they're they have a white face and a, and a white body and then a tan back with lots of spots. And that, uh, that iconic heart-shaped face really helps to, uh, to channel um, sound. So they're, they're, of course, they're listening and they're flying and they're listening for those, uh, uh, those rodents that are scurrying around like in the grass. And it's just a really just an amazing adaptation to me that, you know, that they uh, that they actually have this this heart shaped face that allows them to hunt so efficiently. And the best time of the year to put up barn owl boxes is when they're actively seeking new locales to live. I understand the best time of the year here in California to put out those nesting boxes, the barn owl boxes is mid to late fall, November and December. And I would think for the rest of the country, you would need them ready to go by late winter. That's exactly true. That This is just the perfect time to, to put up a, a nest box because, uh, because the males and females are getting together and they're searching out nest sites. 
And uh, so the, the barn owls actually begin nesting in, uh, in February. I was surprised to learn that barn owls uh, do have predators coming after them. And uh, one of their major enemies are other species of owls. Yeah, like the great horned owl that, uh, that I was talking to a guy just the other day. And he was telling me that he was just watching a barn owl. And a great horned owl just came out of nowhere and just and just and just basically just just came down and just snared it. It was he said it was uh, it was really just kind of a little distressing because he because he loves his barn owls. But yeah, that uh, that can happen. And uh, and so the, uh, the one of the main predators, of course, of the barn owl is is the great horned owl. Now, how about some barn owl house basics? Uh, what size should it be, and how do you how do you clean the thing? Oh, that's a really good question. So there's uh, there's wonderful barn uh, barn owl box uh, house plans in uh, one of our uh, uh, University of California the booklets called Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes that can uh, can be found uh, online, and uh, and then also there's a lot of plans also that are that are found online. But you know, it basically, it's just like a large, a large box that's you know at least uh, maybe, you know, uh, two feet by uh, wide, um, by one foot uh, by you know by maybe another fifteen inches high, and with a with a hole uh, in it so that the barn owls can go uh, in and out. And then what you have is in the back, you'll have a little hinge door that you can open up because the the barn owl box will fill up with pellets and such and so uh, so you, at the end of the nesting season uh, usually in the fall uh, early winter so you're talking you know maybe october november december then then you can open up the back and try to sweep that out of course you don't want to breathe any of that dust you know because the uh, it's basically you know just uh, could be could be a little bit uh, unhealthy to breathe that dust um, but uh, but then you can do that and you want to check and just sort of maintain the, the houses that way Going back to the construction of the barn owl house, how big should that opening be to allow them to get in and get out? You know, it's got to be at least, uh, I would say, about uh, maybe six inches uh, high and, say, uh, four to five inches wide. And, uh, and as I say, those plans can be, can be found on the, on the website. And it used to be, you know, that we'd recommend having a perch there, but we don't anymore because I think when you have a perch that, uh, that hawks can actually land on the little perch, you know, outside the hole, and then they can reach in with their talons and, uh, and pluck out a, uh, a little baby barn owl. So, so actually we recommend now really not even having that perch. And if you want more information about building barn owl houses, uh, go to that uh, booklet that Rachel was talking about called Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes, and you can find it at the UC Ag and Natural Resources catalog. If you just do a search on Songbird, Bat, and Owl Boxes, I'm sure that would pop right up. They're amazing hunting creatures that can help you control the rodent population on your farm or rural area. Rachel Long, UC Cooperative Extension Farm Advisor in Woodland, thanks for telling us more about barn Owls. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's available just about anywhere podcasts are handed out, and that includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Overcast, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and uh, hey Alexa, play the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast, would you please? Thank you for listening, subscribing, and leaving comments. We appreciate it.